Jesse Isinger of ProPublica, you broke, you and your team broke one of the biggest tax stories uh, of the year, really of the last many, many years, um, obtaining confidential IRS documents showing uh, what very, very wealthy people are paying or really not paying in taxes. So the first question I have for you on this is, what do you think the scandal is here in the in the data that you obtained? I mean, what what should be the big takeaway for people who don't know much about this, but know that there's some big piece of news here? Yeah, well, so thanks for having me. We're, you know, we are going to have a series of stories, and I think that there will be um, differing kinds of scandals or outrages um, in uh, in those different stories. For instance, we had a follow-up story to our, uh, our big main first story of the uh, Peter Thiel's IRA and the gigantic IRAs, and that's a different set of questions and standards. So in our first story, uh, what we lay out um, is a system, a systemic problem where the ultra-wealthy are in a different tax universe than the rest of us. And uh, I think that it's simple to say that the way they um, manage their fortunes and the way our tax system is set up, they can simply avoid any significant taxation. Sometimes they can literally avoid all federal taxation. And so you see Jeff Bezos paying zero in federal income tax in a couple of recent years and Elon Musk paying zero federal income tax and Bloomberg and Soros and Icon and others um, of their ilk literally paying zero, um, which I think is a scandal. And then the bigger issue is that they are in this entirely different universe and can sidestep the system. And I think that is a system, it's a scandal of legality. It's this classic Kinsley line of uh, that the scandal is what's legal, not what's illegal. So one question that's come up in the first story, and we'll, we'll get to the Peter Thiel, the second story, because that's mind boggling as well. But one, one thing that came up in the first story was this idea of income versus wealth, that, mm-hmm. that you see wealth growth, but a lower amount of official income that these folks are, are classifying as income, and then what they pay in taxes on the income. And in a sense, what they pay in taxes on the income actually, in some ways, is is in line with what you might uh, expect, you know, 20, 25 percent uh, overall uh, effective tax rate. But it's really the wealth issue. So they're growing their wealth at a much bigger rate than they're growing their income. Just for folks who don't understand necessarily the difference between like wealth and income and what those terms mean, I would like to just hear you sort of explain that. And then the question is, do you think that this speaks to what you found? Do you think it speaks to the idea that we should be that we need to be taxing not only income, but actually the issue is how does the tax system apply to wealth? Sure. So let me let, let's back up and explain our tax system in kind of basic terms. And we and our story is a very simple idea, but it's worth really understanding. And then we can discuss sort of um, what the solutions are. And and um, so the way taxes work for 
the vast majority of Americans for me and for you when you're employed um, with, uh, you know, employer is that you get a paycheck and your taxes have been extracted from it and you are in the system. You're in the federal tax system. And the typical worker in the United States gets roughly $60,000, um, a year and taxes are extracted and that worker pays about 14% on taxes. And if you're a single filer making as low as $45,000 a year, you are paying 19% in taxes. So how does it work for the ultra wealthy? The, and what we looked at when we talked about the ultra wealthy is we just looked at the top 25 wealthiest Americans according to Forbes because there is no official government um, wealth estimates, it's just Forbes. Um, and so we actually did look at income um, and we looked at the taxes that they paid on their income. And I have to correct you because they don't pay the typical rates. So the IRS does measure what the highest earners make and what the highest earners pay in taxes. And that's uh, roughly, that's about 1,400 people. It's roughly, um, it's the 0.001% of American taxpayers, and they pay about 23%. So they pay $23 for every $100 that they take in, in income. These ultra billionaires pay much less than that. They pay under 16%. Um, on, on their income, on what they're classifying, on their, as what income. they're classifying as income. Right. So they're paying much lower taxes in the classic conventional way that you can measure it. But we decided that wasn't important, and that wasn't really what's going on here. And what's the reason why is that their income is a fraction of their wealth growth. So. Wealth growth is what your underlying mountain of, you know, in the bank account is growing. If you picture Jeff Bezos, his giant mountain of wealth is growing every year. And he's got this little tributary off, um, uh, you know, the water coming down from the mountain, which can be classified as income. And that's basically voluntary. For us, we need to work to live and the taxes get extracted from our paychecks. For Jeff Bezos, he does not have to get a paycheck and he does not have to work to live and he doesn't have to report anything anything such as income. In fact, like when you look at his wages, um, he's getting like a middle-class salary. He's getting about $80,000 a year. And famously, a lot of these, um, you know, uh, tech gurus and guys like that, like Zuckerberg and the Google boys and Steve Jobs famously got $1 salaries. Now that's not a self-sacrifice because salaries are taxed, high salaries are taxed at the highest marginal rates. Each dollar over a certain level at over $600,000 is taxed at 37%. Um, so you want to avoid that if you can, and Jeff Bezos can avoid it. So instead, what he does is he sits on his mountain of wealth, and that Himalayan mountain grows um, because t Amazon stock tends to have gone away up uh, in value. And then what happens? Well, these billionaires don't need to have income to live to fund their lifestyles, what you can do is you can borrow. And the shorthand for this is buy, borrow, die. You 
buy your asset or you build your company or you inherit your fortune. Lots of these people have inherited money like the Walmarts and the Mars family um, in the top 25 wealthiest Americans. And then they can borrow against this giant pool of money. Um, and when you borrow against something that's not income, so you're not paying taxes on it, you are paying a modest amount of interest, but your interest is pretty low because you um, are, uh, you've got a lot of assets that you're putting up as collateral. And in fact, the interest rolls over and you're not actually, the dollars are not flowing out to pay the interest because the banks know you're good for it. And then eventually you can die and you can avoid estate taxes in a variety of ways. So you're basically, your wealth is out of the tax system. And, and that is the real scandal. So then of course the question is, okay, well, how would in practice, how would you bring it into the tax system? Now, there's this been, been this discussion about a wealth tax. And one of the things that comes up is the idea that would it be fair? Would it be practical? Uh, would you be able to do it to essentially require Jeff Bezos on his giant Himalayan mountain of cash? Would it be... Would you be able to get him, if let's say he had a 1%, 2% wealth tax every year, essentially to liquidate parts of investments that he has in order to pay the tax? In other words, that mountain of, of, of money is not actually necessarily liquid money. It is presumably in all sorts of, of investments and the like. And so the, the, I wouldn't say it's necessarily the argument against it, but, but the thing that's come up is to say, well, are you going to actually – would you actually make a billionaire or a, a multi-hundred millionaire sell off a piece of a company in order to pay a tax? Is, is that how it would work? And if not, what do you make of this whole argument about whether it's practical or not? Yeah. So, I mean, just just to uh, first say, you know, we're just journalists. We're just reporters. We're not advocates. Right. And so we're, and we're not um, we're not policy advocates or necessarily even policy experts. Um, so there are uh, ways that people have um, suggested to go about this. And um, one famously is the wealth tax. There are other ways that you could possibly get at wealth. One other proposal from Ron Wyden, which is backed by certain experts, is uh, taxing unrealized gains. Um, and we can get to that in a second. But the first question is, with a wealth tax, you, you have um, some fundamental issues. One is how to measure wealth. Um, can you measure it properly? Um, and uh, with someone like Jeff Bezos or Warren Buffett, who owns a lot of Berkshire Hathaway stock, or the people, Mark Zuckerberg, who owns Facebook, there it's a matter of public record how much they own and their wealth is overwhelmingly tied up in those companies, um, Amazon, Facebook, and Berkshire Hathaway, and the price is set every single minute of every trading day, uh, every nanosecond of every trading day. And so we, we have a very good idea of what their wealth is. We have less good idea what David Koch's wealth is or Michael Bloomberg because they have private um, empires or, you know, Donald Trump because he's got a private real estate empire. And, and just to interject uh, there, it's not even just that it's it's private. It's that just so folks understand this, it's that some of the things that they own, we don't know exactly how much 
their worth, right? Like if you're Steve Schwartzman, totally. the, the head yeah. of Blackstone, and you know, which is a private equity firm, private equity means you own an asset that doesn't necessarily we don't there's no scientific answer to how much the asset is worth until you actually sell the, the asset so i mean if he owns an office building like how much is the office building worth well we know what he bought it for we he could try to sell it but you don't actually know how much it's worth until you until you actually sell it so measuring that seems like kind of difficult Yes, except, I mean, then this is a common critique of a wealth tax, except that um, we live in a very sophisticated financial system now where private assets trade hands all the time, um, because partly because of private equity funds, buying and selling private assets all the time. There are lots and lots of experts who are valuing these properties all the time. There are lots of people... Uh, externally valuing commercial real estate um, and uh, internally valuing it. And so, in fact, it's something of a canard that we can't value private assets. So this is where I was sort of going with it. So um, the one set of criticisms about the wealth tax, um, before we get into so like how would they pay for it and um, what would they have to sell, is like, can you value this stuff? Um, and the question and the point, I think, is you can with the right amount of information if the IRS were given third party information from lenders and bankers and they already get a lot of third party information on certain things they're getting third party information from banks all over the world about foreign bank accounts um you could get third party information about uh lending to certain assets and how they valued those assets and you get a pretty good idea of what the values are so objection number one it's too hard to measure these super wealthy um fortunes is, uh, I just think, wrong. Um, so then the question is, well, uh, do you want to make people sell all the time? What if they're not liquid? Um, and it's a very good question, and there would be some complications to it, I think, but there are ways to do it. One thing that Jeff Bezos could do is give some of his shares to the government. Um, and that could be potentially not a taxable event because you're transferring it to the government too. Um, and then the government either sells it off or it keeps it, um, uh, you know, it keeps it in its store and the government becomes a, uh, an investor in a company that happens all over um, the world. Uh, and the government has been in, an owner of companies before and you would, it would be a non-taxable event. So, so just to be, so you, to be clear, the, the Bezos thing that you're, outlining because it's a publicly traded stock i mean that that makes that's easy right if you're uh, an owner of, of of buildings let's say it, it could be sort of the same thing you could essentially yeah, you create shares a, right yeah yeah they all have shares right um, just because they're not um private uh, not publicly traded shares um all these privately held companies, privately held assets have shareholdings. Right. So you can just, um, and just in, give that as, in, in other words, in lieu of cash. You could satisfy the yeah. tax bill in lieu of cash with, with that. Right. Um, a third objection is, well, sometimes wealth goes down, wealth fluctuates. Um, and of course, that's true. Um, and in those cases, you would have, um, you could have uh, money come back to you from the government. Um, or you could satisfy the tax bill's over the course of um, the the two economists who are most well known for their wealth tax proposals, who advised 
Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, the senators who proposed these um, these changes are uh, Emmanuel Saez and Gabriel Zuckman from Berkeley, and their plan is to have tax bills satisfied over a sort of 10-year period mm -hmm. where um, it sort of evens out and you ultimately kind of settle up uh, over 10 years based on the ultimate kind of disposition of your wealth. And so uh, there are lots of ways to solve this problem. Um, there are huge hurdles um, to a wealth tax. The uh, one possibility is that you know people can hide their wealth very uh, aggressively and that they would hide it, um, would successfully hide it overseas. Um, another is that they would you know move. Um, and the third problem is potentially that you would hinder um, economic development, you'd hinder the incentive to um, for these guys to invest. Uh, I don't really buy these objections, but it is fair to say that a wealth tax has been unsuccessful uh, by and large in developed Western countries um, in the times that they've really tried to do an aggressive one. Switzerland has a effective wealth tax today. Um, they don't actually have capital gains tax, but today they have a modest wealth tax that works, that um, uh, varies from canton to canton. Um, and so my view is if Switzerland can do it, uh, the United States could potentially do it too. And the United States is a, is a global leader. If the United States implements a new tax regime, other countries would follow, which would make it then um, e more easily enforced. Okay, so I, let's turn so people really understand some of the, at least one of the most egregious ways that you've uncovered that wealth is, is sheltered. This story about um, Peter Thiel and an IRA is so mind-boggling that that it just it has to be heard to be believed. Um, Peter Thiel, billionaire, uh, had an IRA, and when I read this story, I'll just set the stage for you to tell the story. But when I read this story, the first thing I thought was, "Wait a minute." I thought a Roth IRA was capped at a certain level of income and you could only put in a certain amount of money into your Roth IRA and yet oh you Peter, naive, yeah, naive man yeah but Peter Thiel has apparently turned an IRA a Roth IRA into like a multi-billion dollar entity so how did that happen yeah. So first, just to be clear, I did the first story on um, measuring the tax rates of the wealthy against their wealth growth with my colleagues, Paul Keel and Jeff Ernsthausen. They're brilliant reporters. And then we've got a team of reporters doing tax stories. And that story was done by Justin Elliott and Trish Callahan and James Bandler. Um, and it was an extraordinary feat of reporting because they had to piece through things in securities filings and legal documents. And uh, they went to New Zealand uh, records and uh, and all this stuff and uh, uncovered lots of secret um, uh, or elliptical interviews where people were referring to this. Um, so, yes, they found that Peter Thiel has a five billion dollar Roth IRA and others like Warren Buffett and Warren Buffett's Lieutenant Ted Weschler and a variety of other people have, uh, you know, uh, the guy who runs Alden Capital is sort of uh, destroying all these newspapers. They have gigantic Roth IRAs in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And that's not, um, you know, uh, Teal has by and large the um, 
the biggest that we could find. So how did he do this? Well, the simple answer is that he contributed to it a long time ago in 1999 when he both made he made under the income threshold and um, and he contributed under the limit for it. Um, and yes, let's back up. What is a Roth IRA? Well, a Roth IRA is a retirement vehicle intended for the middle class. And so ostensibly, you're not allowed to put in more than a certain amount. I think it's $6,000 now in the Roth IRA. And you can only do it if you've made below a certain amount in income. And um, it accum you take post-tax dollars from it. So after you've paid your income tax and it accumulates over time. And then if you wait until you're almost 60 years old, you don't have to pay a dime in taxes on it when you take it out. So it can, um, it can grow it, in there. And then it, the it growth grows, is It grows tax. there. Yeah, it grows tax-free. And then you take it out and, and you never have to be taxed on it. And that's different from an, a traditional IRA. And so what happened with Teal? Well, what happened with Teal is that he contributed founders' shares, the original shares of PayPal, um, into the Roth IRA in a year when he had very low income. So his income was ostensibly um, below the threshold. And then he took this, these shares, which were each worth fractions of a penny, um, according to the valuation of his, you know, his valuation is advisor's valuation. Um, it's a very important point, but at fractions of a penny. So he put lots and lots and lots of shares that were worth very, 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 very little money into the Roth IRA. It was below the threshold at the time. And then those have exploded in value. And then since then he um, moved though, then he's got a bank account where he can move all that money into different investments and invest in lots and lots of things. And, um, so then, boom, you know, $5 billion, which if he uh, doesn't sell um, until he's 60, uh, he pays zero in taxes on it, $5 billion tax-free. It's uh, not bad work if you can get it. So he basically takes PayPal when it's allegedly a penny stock because he's a founder. He throws it in there. He uses a year where he's made under the threshold. He throws it these, like, you know, thousand, maybe, I, for, I don't forget how many stock, but a lot of that penny stock in there. And then it grows into billions of dollars, and he it, it can just grow, 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 grow. And then when he takes it out at fifty at age fifty nine, he doesn't have to pay any taxes on that at all. So in other words, not just like the typical like I'm going to earn my wealth through paying the artificially lower capital gains rate. This is like I'm not going to pay any taxes on this at Nothing. all. Yeah, nada, zero, zero capital gains tax, zero income tax. And the issue is, you know, you could imagine that you would say uh, that this is, there are a lot of questions about whether this was strictly uh, on the up and up and whether this um, should have been able to happen because there are a lot of restrictions about what kind of things you can put in and how they should be properly valued. Um, you can imagine theoretically that you say, I'm going to take a total flyer on this unknown uh, company and put in these 
Um, no one in the world can imagine that this company would ever be worth anything. Only I can see that eventually it will be worth a lot. And so I'll, nobody is valuing this stuff at all. Um, and so I will put it into an account and then boom, it grew. And I was, I had this extraordinary foresight in this case, however, in a matter of weeks from when Teal contributed those shares at um, fractions of a penny, then all of a sudden investors started investing in PayPal um, and uh, banks gave him, I think it was something like four, $4.5 million in investment, which to get a minority share. So if that was, you know, about 50% um, percent just making, you know, make the assumption there that company's worth $9 million and his, his, there's no way to claim after just a few weeks that his shares were worth pennies, um, fractions of pennies. So there looks like there could have been a game there. Um, we're certainly raising questions about that. Yeah, I mean, um, the, va the valuation seems to be in this in this case, the sort of uh, lack of oversight or lack of regulation or lack of scrutiny really seems to be at the heart of that uh, of that potential scandal like exactly yeah. and there is a rule that says you can't it's called there's a stuffing rule that says you can't put in artificially low uh, you know assets that are artificially low in value um artificially value uh, valued an artificially low level um, into your IRA. There's a there's a rule that says you can't do it, but there's essentially no regulation and no enforcement of this. And that goes to uh, a series of stories that um, I did in previous years with Paul Keel uh, about how the IRS has been gutted and um, they really don't oversee this at all. And so it's a kind of wild west where if you are aggressive, you can get away with things. Well, and, and that's what I want to turn to 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 uh, for the final part of this which is the whole enforcement part you've been reporting for years and years on how the IRS uh, its enforcement has been gutted which by the way I think actually fits in with uh, your your book which is called the chicken shit club one of my favorite books which is about the failure to prosecute uh, the uh, Wall Street executives after the financial crisis. I think it all fits together in the sense that, you know, there's a lot of talk about so-called defunding the police. Uh, and you, you have folks on the right criticizing the idea of defunding the police. But actually, if you consider the tax authorities and the white-collar criminal enforcement authorities, the police proverbially, uh, the police have been defunded, right? Those Absolutely. police have been defunded a long time ago. And, and now we're living in a world of, a, of, of defunded uh, tax and white-collar crime police. Uh, and so my question to you uh, after we've heard all of this is, what do you think the game looks like and is the game changed if the IRS is beefed up in the way, for instance, the Biden administration says that it supports? Like, are we at a place where the IRS can be rebuilt to actually deal with something like, for instance, uh, Peter Thiel stuffing uh, alleged penny stocks that are actually worth a lot of money uh, into an IRA. I mean, do, how optimistic, pessimistic are you that like it's even possible to police this stuff anymore? 
Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, I completely agree with you that the IRS uh, gutting of the IRS is of a piece of um, a continuation of what I um, was writing about with white collar, uh, lack of white collar enforcement. And, you know, we, we it's a, essentially we've had a prison abolition movement for CEOs um, and, you know, there's elite impunity to commit crimes. And I think it's a grave threat to um, society and democracy. Um, and so the question is whether we can rebuild that enforcement structure. And of course, in theory, we can. Um, the IRS was really gutted. The Republicans have been attacking it since the mid-90s through the contract with America and the Gingrich years and Roth, Senator Roth himself of the Roth IRA, led um, one of the first waves of attack on the IRS. But it kind of got built up a little bit. And then the um, attack in earnest restarted in 2010 and has been going on for about a decade. Um, so you can, in theory, rebuild it, but it takes it would take billions and billions of dollars and years of effort. There is there's no way that you would really see great fruit from a rebuilding effort for a year or two years. I would think you'd have to take three or four. Um, years of concerted investment um, effort. It's a reclamation effort that would take years and billions of dollars. And whether the government has the appetite to do that, whether the Biden administration really wants to do that, um, whether Congress would even support it, uh, is uh, these are real open questions. There was, I think, a modest, you know, beginnings of a bipartisan. Uh, support for increasing the IRS budget and enforcement after the Republicans had been sort of relentless in their attacks for um, a decade coming. And then, unfortunately, with the our stories, um, Republicans have started to say, well, the IRS can't be trusted with more enforcement um, budget, with more information uh, on taxpayers, because look what happens. And um, and so I'm worried that one of the impacts that uh, from our stories will be that uh, it um, the Republicans then you know back away from anything that they looking like support for boosting the IRS. Well, that was the funny part of or funny uh, sort of funny. funny, funny, funny yeah. yeah the, 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 <laughs> their first reaction was we need to uh, prosecute. Uh, hunt down and prosecute the leaker, not we necessarily need to actually uh, have the police effectively, the you know, the tax enforcers, uh, investigate all of the potential uh, uh, scams in the legal gray areas, all of the things uh, that are involved uh, in the documents and the data that you found, right? I mean, their first reaction was essentially uh, go after the messenger, the, the, the leaker, not necessarily deal with the problem that the leaker is spotlighting. But I, but I just very quickly, uh, just a really quick follow-up on this, this question of IRS enforcement. I mean, I, again, I know you're like a reporter and you're not an advocate, but I do wonder if in reporting on all of this, that one takeaway could be that that if you need a tax enforcement agency uh, to deal with something so complex, opaque, and esoteric as this ridiculous tax system uh, that we have, that the solution is not only just more enforcement, better enforcement, rebuild enforcement, but that the solution also has to be 
uh, tax simplification. In other words, the complexity of the problem is part of what makes it hard uh, to enforce. Is that a fair takeaway, you think? Oh, I'm uh, completely in favor of uh, the complexity works in favor of the super wealthy who can hire lawyers and who can um, hire great accountants and who can game the system and be very aggressive and then uh, and then claim everything is legal. There's no question. Um, and I, I'm in a big advocate of lots of um, simplification of our uh, overly complex regulatory apparatus. I think that there are these. The world is complicated, so you can't just have simple rules. But I think we should have many, many more simple rules and dumb, stupid regulations and stupid principles, um, you know, so uh, rather than smart laws. I think that um, when technocrats try to design smart regulations that try to deal with every eventuality and define every single thing down to the um, to the uh, you know finest hair, then the very smart lawyers and accountants can go right up to the line and then pretend that they're on the right side of the line rather than the wrong side of the line. When you have basic principles like you cannot, um, don't manipulate securities, and we will tell you what manipulation is when we see it, which is the central um, rule in securities law that goes back to 1933, um, then uh, that gives a lot of leeway for regulators to say, yeah, that fits our definition of what we meant by manipulation. And lawyers will say, stay very, very far away from any line like that because they can define it the way they want. And so, um, yeah, we should have a much simpler tax system. Um, you know, the, the really funny thing is that uh, our first story was embraced by the Arthur Laffers of the world, um, which I did not anticipate um, because they advocate a wealth tax, I mean, excuse me, a flat tax and even on wealth um, and uh, and consumption. Um, and so uh, I'm not sure that's what I support, uh, but uh, it, it is, uh, there are proposals for simplifying the tax regime, but, you know, that is not even in the cards. Like in, increasing the wealth, uh, increasing the IRS enforcement budget is um, a possibility in our, our current democratic system, um, radical simplification of the tax code, along with that enforcement increase is just not, no one is even contemplating that. Jesse Eisinger of ProPublica, thank you so much for taking the time today and for your reporting. And please, please, seriously, keep it up and keep me informed on what you're doing. Okay? Okay. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks, fun. man. Appreciate it.